Procrastination is defined as the act of unnecessarily and voluntarily delaying or postponing something despite knowing that there will be negative consequences for doing so. Anybody in here a chief procrastinator along with me? I'm the president of that club. Yeah? All right. Yeah. So we're in good company. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci is widely considered one of the most just creative and talented individuals to have ever lived. And as an artist, he is known for The Last Supper, The Mona Lisa, uh, among others. There's, there's, a, there's others too. However, his total output in his painting is really rather small. If you look at his body of work, there are only 17 surviving paintings that can be definitely attributed to da Vinci and several of them are unfinished. <laughs> he didn't get around to finishing them. The small number of these surviving paintings, his work of art, is due in part to his chronic procrastination. He was definitely a procrastinator. He often required threats from the people uh, that, uh, that were paying him for art commissions or, or employing him to do public art installations whatever it might have been, uh, a lot of people would threaten to withhold payment, to motivate him, to get him in gear. And the Mona Lisa, one of the most fam famous paintings in the world, it took over 15 years for him to finish that, to get it to the point that it is today. And worse was The Virgin of the Rocks, another work that he did. Uh, he was commissioned with a seven-month deadline to get this one done, and he finished it 25 years later. So that is a long time to wait, right? I'm sure that these people are like, we give up. <laughs> We're never getting our painting. Uh, you know, Da Vinci took the money and ran. Uh, da Vinci apologized uh, reportedly on his deathbed. Uh, there's a quote attributed to him. He apologized to God and man for leaving so much undone. Somebody that had that major of an impact on art and culture, and we're still talking about him all these hundreds of years later, um, his biggest regret is that he didn't do more, that he didn't, uh, you know, take things seriously, that he left so much undone. And as we've all determined, many of us procrastinate. I mean, I know I do. Sometimes other things just get in the way. Other times it's just easier to do the opposite of what we should be doing. Uh, I just kind of want to do exactly the opposite of the thing that really needs to get done. And that might be well all uh, you know, be all well and good in most situations, but procrastinating, if we're thinking about it in spiritual terms, is a dangerous thing. And there's what I want to talk about today is there's no better time than now to decide where we stand with Jesus. So today is very much an evangelistic message. Now, we want to present the gospel in, in every sermon, uh, but this one is most definitely targeted toward people who are not believers today. People who are uh, maybe here and, and they say, you know, I'm not a Christian. People that might be listening later or watching online, they might say, you know what, I, I really don't know if, if I'm a believer or not. And so if you're here today and you are a Christian, don't zone out because there's still things here that can challenge you as well and hopefully 
encourage you as you take the gospel to people in your everyday life. So there's three things that I want to consider today uh, from our text about the gospel message, about the good news of Jesus Christ that we just literally heard a line of children sing about. They presented the gospel to you, especially in that last song that they sang. So three things that I want to consider, and here we go. Number one is an unavoidable decision. Number two is an undeniable interest. And number three is an ultimate rejection. Those are the three things that I want us to explore today as we dive into chapter 24 and specifically look at a guy named Felix. All right, so let's summarize the end of chapter 23 real quick. Because last week we only hit the beginning of chapter 23. And if you were to read ahead in chapter 23, you would find out that, that the plot has thickened. You know, uh, last week we saw how Paul was drug out of the murderous mob a couple of different times. And he was, uh, you know, uh, being threatened with death. And, and there was all this stuff. He was punched in the mouth uh, at the order of the high priest. I mean, it was, it was drama. And that drama continues in chapter 23. More than 40 Jewish nationalists, right? These 40 guys who were a part, uh, most of them probably a part of the Sanhedrin. Remember, we're talking, they were kind of like the Supreme Court of their day. They had plotted to kill Paul. They wanted to murder this guy. And by God's providence, we find out that Paul has got family in Jerusalem. He's got a sister, evidently. We don't know her name. We don't know anything about her. We just know that she existed. Luke, the author of Acts, tells us that. And he's also got a young nephew who just so happened, right, quote-unquote, because God put him there, uh, to hear about this plot to murder his uncle. So I think that that should be a warning to us. Uh, if kids are around, they're always listening, right? <laughs> they might, uh, you know, spoil your plot, whatever it might be. So this young guy, he goes and he reports it to the Roman guards in charge of Paul's imprisonment. And so the commander, again, we find out finally his name is Claudius Lysias. That's the guy last week that we were like, man, he's just so confused. He has no idea what's going on. He just wants to understand what, what these Jewish people are squabbling about. And so we see that Claudius Lysias, he gets word of this. And so he sends 200 soldiers, 200, to protect Paul as they transport him to Caesarea, which was another town that was down the hill from Jerusalem. It's where the governor, uh, basically it's like the governor's mansion was there. It's where Felix lived. It's where he uh, kept order from. And so they are sending 200 soldiers, mounted uh, cavalry to protect Paul as he goes to have this trial uh, before, before Felix uh, to prevent this assassination attempt. So that is kind of what happens as we are rolling into chapter 24. All of that has taken place. So that gives you the context. And so let's look again at our first point here, an unavoidable decision. So look at verse 1, and I'll just read through this and stop and make some comments along the way, and we'll see what the Lord does. So verse 1, it says, After five days, the high priest Ananias, who we learned about last week, not a good guy, came down with some elders. So the same high priest, uh, and everything is down when you're in Jerusalem, by the way. If you've ever been there, um, you know, it's, it's on a hill. And so everything is down. So when you read in scripture, it says they're going down. It just means they're going down the hill. 
And some elders, these were probably members of the Sanhedrin, supporters of the Sadducees, because they were the ruling party. We talked about that last week. They were the ones that really didn't have much of a spiritual belief at all, yet they were in charge of all the spiritual things. Uh, so the, the Pharisees were the minority. So we see that we've got these Sadducees that come down, and it says they came down with an attorney named Tertullus. There's a good name for you. Tertullus, a hired gun of the Sanhedrin. This guy is like a high-flying lawyer. I mean, think of hotshot prosecutor. Think of your courtroom dramas that you like to watch on TV and binge watch on Netflix. This guy is a lawyer's lawyer. The Sanhedrin had went out and hired the best that they could find. And what is interesting about this is he was most likely a Gentile. Which, if you remember back to last week, was what was so offensive to them was that Paul said he was supposed to take the hope of the resurrection to the Gentiles. And the Jewish people were wanting to murder him for that. Then they turn right around and go and hire a Gentile lawyer to prosecute this guy that they wanted to kill for wanting to take the message to people like him. Do you guys see the hypocrisy there? It's like drenched in hypocrisy. And here's the thing, Tertullus was not a good guy. He was corrupt. He was willing to say whatever needs to be said to secure his conviction. As we're going to see here in a moment, he has got a PhD in flattery. All right, so let's look at in there. It says they came down with Tertullus and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. After Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, you know, since we have through you attained much peace. So he begins with with this, this, this uh, you know, very common way of beginning before a Roman official, uh, you wanted to basically suck up to them. You wanted to just really shine their shoes, butter their biscuits, whatever you want to say there, blow smoke, make them feel like they're really important so that they will hear your message. And so he starts out, he says, since we have through you attained much peace, and this was not true, this was not right lie. Felix had the least peaceful term of any Roman administrator up until his time. This guy could not lead at all, so we're going to find out. The Jews hated him. He was better known for taking bribes than helping the Jewish people. And we'll dig into to more of old Felix's character here in a moment. But Tertullus says, And since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. But that I may not weary you any further. I mean, he just keeps packing on here, right? A brief hearing, if you will, good sir. Uh, for we have found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ring leader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple and then we arrested him. All of that was a flat-out lie. Nothing about that was true. Now, here's the thing. It's Luke's purpose throughout Acts, especially here in these final chapters, to show the Roman world. Now, remember, the original audience was to people who were Roman, to, to people who were Gentile, that they were wanting to see come to know the Lord. It's his purpose throughout Acts to show the Roman world, and then even us today, you and I, that the charges against Christianity are false. And that's what we're really going to see, that, that it's really the faith that is on trial here. And this is why Luke reports so many appearances before Roman courts and officials. And also, 
Think back. Jesus himself forewarned his disciples and even us today in Matthew 10, 16 through 18, that this type of persecution and trouble was come. Jesus said, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. And then in Acts 10, verses 15 and 16, Jesus himself said to Ananias, not the high priest, a different Ananias, a guy that, that he commissioned to just go and pray over Paul after Paul had been knocked off his high horse and, and came to know the Lord and was blinded. Remember that whole, that whole thing? Uh, he sends Ananias and he wants him to tell Paul that, quote, he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Paul's just walking in his calling. He knows what it is that he is to do. We talked about this last week. So from the very beginning, this was to be part for the course. In most places in the world, if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, things are hard. We somehow don't see that living in the country in which we live. We've been blessed with, with religious freedom and peace for the most part. But we see Luke uses each of these appearances before authorities as a showcase for how the claims of the gospel are true and they're strong. They stand up against any scrutiny you want to bring against them, any, against any uh, you know, accusations you want to bring against it, any condemnation you want to bring against the message, the gospel can stand against it. Even outright lies couldn't stop the good news. If anything, it fanned the flames. And he shows us how to give a Christ-like defense of the hope that we have in Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. We're going to see Paul put humility on display again. So we see Paul is essentially accused of three things in what we just read. He's accused of being a troublemaker, right? That word there is loimos. It means pest, a real agitator. He was calling him a pestilence type of guy, right? Like it's a very uh, derogatory term. He was accused of being a leader of this new sect of Judaism. It's how they viewed it, called the Nazarenes. And again, uh, you, you, we've read it in the Gospels before. Like what good can come of Nazareth? That's why there was such a low view of Jesus, because Nazareth was kind of the backwater town. Nothing good ever came from there, yet God chose to bring the Messiah out of that. And so this, this, this thing here, he calls him this, this ring leader. It's this compound word. It's only used here in the New Testament, and it basically means first to stand. So Paul is being accused of being the guy out front leading the charge. Of this, this new thing called Christianity. It's only found there in the New Testament. And he's also accused of being uh, somebody who desecrated the temple. And that was complete nonsense. He had done nothing wrong. If anything, he followed all the rules. He, he was purified before he went into the temple, if you remember, back in Acts chapter 21, when this whole drama situation started. So we see verse 6. Tertullus continues, we wanted to judge him according to our own law, but Lysus, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. Again, that was completely false. If anything, Lysus had been the one to squelch the violence. He was rescuing 
Paul. And so Tertullus, he knows how to lay it on the thick. And this was complete nonsense. If anything, Lysus was, was there uh, that was, uh, you know, attempting to keep the Jews from being the ones who inflict violence. And he did it multiple times. And Tertullus conveniently left out the part where these 40 Jewish men uh, vowed not to eat until they killed Paul. So it's obvious they were not Baptists because they were going to get some lunch, right? Like, I had a feeling that these guys bowed out of that vow really quickly. Like, come on, let's go get some food. So Tertullus, he goes on to say, by examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. And it says the Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. I like how I just get like one sentence. You get this feeling that the Jews referenced here in verse 9 are like some little brother standing next to their big brother yelling, Yeah, well, he's dead. That's it. <laughs> like they're the tough ones, right? Like they're the ones that showed up to the block ready to duke it out. They're the ones that are standing in the back and like, yeah, what he said. Like he's the one that, that, that's, uh, you know, right here. So after all this nonsense, Felix looks to Paul and he gives him the go-ahead. He gives him to go ahead to begin his defense. And notice that Paul doesn't have a lawyer. He is by himself. At least he doesn't have an earthly lawyer. He has the one on his side who is the advocate, though. And that is Jesus. He is the advocate, the one who uh, it goes to bat for us before the Heavenly Father, the one who defends us. The one that we just read from the book of Matthew, he will give us the, the, the knowledge of what to say and what to do when we are put on the spot for him. And that comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul might not have a lawyer, but he's got the Holy Spirit inside of him. And he is about to step up and make his defense. So when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. <laughs> Paul's like, I'm not going to be flattering. Here. Like, I love his opening line here. Tertullus was blowing all this smoke with his flattery, and Paul's just like, yeah, sure, you're a judge. Let's get on with this. <laughs> you're a guy, all right? Um, Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone causing a riot. Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accused me. So Paul calmly and plainly pointed out that the accusations against him were false, that they were utter nonsense. And notice, he doesn't outright call them liars. He doesn't accuse them of plotting to murder him. He doesn't do that. It wasn't his intent to get in the mud and wrestle with them. He very easily could have done that. They punched him in the mouth, literally. They tried to kill him. And here he is, and he is still being civil. He's still showing humility. He's showing Christ-like humility. He takes the high road in his defense. So friends, listen. We talked about this last week. Always choose humility. Be humble. Even during stressful and hurtful seasons and situations, remain humble. Show respect in the face of those who seek to bring you trouble. It's hard to do. And I'm not saying that, that I haven't ever messed up and, and spouted off and lost my temper. But at the end of the day, if we can just remember that if we can keep Christ-like humility, that will demonstrate that there is something different about us. Yes. That there's something that has happened with inside of us that makes us completely different from the people who seek to talk 
bad about us, to bring us down, whatever it might be. It puts Jesus on display. And that's what we want to do with our life. Verse 14, Paul continues, But this I admit to you. So he's, he's admitting to something. That according to the way, right, that's, that's following Jesus, that's what they called it, that's Christianity. According to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. Having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So Paul, he denies the accusations of stirring up trouble, of desecrating the temple, but he fully and unashamedly admits to following Jesus. You see that, right? He doesn't bow out of that. He's not like Peter on the night that Jesus was crucified or he was resurrected before he was crucified the next day. He didn't deny Jesus. He embraced it. He was like, yeah, look, I follow Jesus. I am a part of this way that they call a sect. And even further, he says, hey, I'm simply placing faith in the one that we're told about in the law and the prophets. The thing that, that all of us believe. I'm not doing anything crazy here. I'm believing what God has already said in his word. I'm following what God has revealed through his prophets and through scripture. It's the exact same scripture that these guys say they believe. So notice that he points out what they have in common rather than what divides them. And that's wise. That's wisdom on display. The wisdom of Jesus we talked about last week. Paul is is simply trying to be humble and wise and point things out in a, in a way that is winsome. And as we read elsewhere in his writings, Paul loved his Jewish kinsmen. We read in the book of Romans, and he says that he would give up his salvation if they would just believe. He wanted to see them come to know Jesus. The ones that wanted to stone him and kill him, he wanted to desperately see be saved. And so look at verse 16. Paul says, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. We see him doing that here. He's just trying to be humble. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to pay my, or to my nation and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. Paul's saying, look, I'm just a guy. I came to bring an offering. I have done everything that has been asked of me to be pure, to be peaceable, and here they are accusing me. But there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make an accusation if they should have anything against me. So Paul's like, the guys that, that started all this, they're not even here, and they should be. Verse 20, or else let these men themselves tell what, the, what, what misdeed they found when I stood before the council other than for this one statement which I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. Remember back to last week. That was, that was what he said that really riled these two different sects, these two different parties up. Here we go. Here's the moment we've been building towards since verse 1. What will Felix's decision be? Because remember, we're talking about there's an unavoidable decision. An unavoidable decision. Verse 22 but Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, that's interesting, put them off, saying, when Lysus, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. And he totally muffs the moment. 
<laughs> he, he doesn't make a decision. Rather than making a decision, he puts them off, is what the text says. He shrugs them away. But to show a bit of charity, he at least tries to treat Paul with some decency. Verse 23, then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom. All right, so we're going to give Paul some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. So that shows us that Luke is here. Obviously, Luke is here in Caesarea, and he is an eyewitness to what's going on. So we have... Boots on the ground. This is what's happening, what we are reading. I believe the man who wrote it witnessed it because it says that he had friends there with him. We know that Paul traveled with an entourage. He rolled deep with some guys everywhere he went. So we, we see that Paul is on trial. But do you see that it's not just him being tried? Do you see the bigger picture here? Because there is one. Do you see the real issue? It's stated in verse 21 that ultimately it's Jesus and the validity of the resurrection that's on trial here. Paul is kind of just the proxy person standing before this court. What's really on trial is Jesus and the truth of the gospel that he rose again, that he conquered hell and death. And let's be honest, it's still on trial today, isn't it? I mean, you see, you're not just sitting in a church building today. You're also in a courtroom. And like Felix, it is up to you to make a decision about the claims of the gospel. So friends, listen. The hope of Jesus and his resurrection has always been, and until he comes back, will always be on trial. Because people don't want to believe. The enemy doesn't want people to know the truth. But everyone must make a decision regarding its implications. Like, you are not afforded the opportunity to sit this one out. So if you're cruising through life thinking that you don't really have to make a decision, listen, you, you can't fool yourself into thinking that that need for a decision will go away. You can only punt for so long. You can't not make a decision. We see Felix here refusing to make a judgment. And rather than making a decision, he makes an excuse. And did you catch this little tidbit in verse 22? I found it interesting. It says about Felix that he had a more exact knowledge about the way. So he knew about Christianity. This implies that... that it wasn't news to him. As a Roman official, I'm sure he had been debriefed about what was going on. Christianity at this point was still allowed. Like they just viewed it as another squabble amongst these Jewish people. Um, so it was, it, was, it was not outlawed. But he had a knowledge of it. And to some degree, he had heard about all of this before. And here he is again, making another excuse. In a very high-profile way. So friends, listen. Excuses are like a roll of toilet paper. Eventually, they're going to run out. And I mean that in all seriousness. The decision that we all must make about Jesus is unavoidable. You have to do it. Don't be fooled into the false sense of security that you can wrestle with where you stand with Jesus another day. It's just too much to think about right now. 
I've got too many other things on my mind, Brandon. You have to understand that. I'll settle the Jesus question when I'm older, right? That's what we tell ourselves when we're younger. I'll get right with Jesus after I've had my fun. I've heard all of these excuses from people before. And whatever your reasoning may be, it only delays the decision that is unavoidable. Where do you stand with Jesus today? Where do you stand? Because a decision not to decide is a decision nonetheless. So if you're saying I'm not making a decision, congratulations, you made a decision. So we've seen an unavoidable decision. So secondly, let's look at an undeniable interest. This is where it gets interesting. So we'll, we'll look at verses 24 and 26. So you see, even though Felix had some knowledge about Christianity, he had now been confronted with a bit of Paul's preaching. We kind of see that here. We see Paul is a great orator. He's a great speaker. Uh, we see him making his argument. And I think it's obvious here that after a few days to think through everything that he had just heard, that Felix very much is interested in Jesus and the claims of the gospel. Now, yes, we're going to see in a moment he does have some mixed motives, but I think that there's an interest here. I think that Luke records this for us because it's important. So verse 24, but some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, so we have a new character here, his wife, who was a Jewess, right? So she's a Jewish person, he's a Gentile, that's going to create some drama in a moment, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So he had Paul come back. As a matter of fact, he brought his wife to this one so that she could hear. So let's take a moment here to get a bit more background on Felix and his wife, Priscilla. Like, we want to understand these people, right? I mean, we've already noted that Felix wasn't a good leader. But what about this guy himself? Who, who is he? Well, for starters, it's interesting to note that he was what was known as a Greek freedman or a former slave. So this guy that's in power now was born into slavery, as crazy as that sounds. And he is the little brother of a guy named Pallas, and Pallas was this guy that had worked his way into this prominent treasurer position uh, to the emperor Claudius in Rome. And it was Pallas who somehow convinced the emperor to give his little brother this leadership position, even though Felix had done nothing to earn it. So we see some nepotism going on here, because Claudius, well, Pallas was one of his, his close confidants. And so Claudius, he puts Felix into power. So history tells us that Felix was greedy, he was corrupt, he was violent. He had the high priest, Jonathan, assassinated at one point for disagreeing with him before Ananias stepped in. And he brutally murdered countless other people throughout his governorship just to keep people squelched, just to keep them under control. And he did it in very terrible ways. He would trick people into certain things, and then he would have them killed, and uh, was all about the party life. He liked his pleasure. So he was not a good guy. He's not a good dude. And we see uh, Luke highlight this. He highlights his mixed motives in verse 26. Verse 26 says, at the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. He heard Paul say that he came to give an offering, that he came to give alms. I think, yes, there is some interest here about what the gospel says, but there, there's also, he's showing his character. He's a sinner. 
He's an evil person. Therefore, he also used to sin for him quite often and converse with him. So this isn't the only time that Paul talked with Felix. Now, what about his wife? What about Drusilla? Drusilla was the youngest daughter of Herod Agrippa I, right? And you're like, I didn't come for a history lesson. Well, it's cool, all right? So this meant, it all makes sense. You've got to understand the people if you want to apply it to your life, all right? So, so likely, scholars think she was like 16 to 18 years old at this time. So she's very young. And she had legendary beauty. It's written about in the history books. She was a very pretty young lady. And before marrying Felix, this is funny, uh, she was his second wife. His first wife was also named Drusilla. So if you're a Parks and Recs fan, I think of Tammy and Tammy, right? So we, we see Drusilla and Drusilla. She was married to a guy named Azizus, who was a king of Amisa. And after Felix wooed her, he literally had a Jewish friend of his go and pretend to be a prophet, a, a magician, uh, and made up this big prophecy about how her life would be awesome if she would just leave her husband and marry him. So he literally was deceptive of a teenage girl to come marry him. This shows his character is terrible, right? And she was a daughter of royalty herself. She was no stranger to a life of opulence, a life of excess. So she was, you know, the perfect uh, person to be at his side. Now, I say all that to say this. These were not people with great morals or reputations. They were sinners. Their subjects hated them. Drusilla's siblings could not stand her. Felix was very much thought of as this incompetent moron who couldn't lead, and those under his command could not stand him. And they were seen as those who heavily abused their power for their own pleasure. So they were not popular people, and yet here they are, smack dab in the middle of this scene in Scripture, and through the grace and providence of God, these two sinners are being confronted with and intrigued by the preaching of the Apostle Paul. So paint the picture of the people to show you that no matter who you are, God will put the gospel before you to consider. So if you think you're a terrible person, I guarantee you're not as terrible as Felix. Like he was a bad dude. Yet the gospel, it is shown, is for people like him, people like Drusilla. And so we see that it's being presented to them. There was an undeniable interest shown by them in the message of the gospel. They were curious enough to want to know more. Now, you may be here today. And you might not be a Christian. You might be listening. You might not be a believer. Welcome. We're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're engaging with this. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, I'm not this unhinged tyrant who lies to teenage girls and kills people. I mean, that guy Felix was, was terrible. That guy Felix really did need some Jesus in his life. Uh, I'm not a bad, bad person. Um, you know, uh, you know, Felix is the one that needs the gospel, the preaching of the word, all the worship. You know, I find all that interesting, but I'm not sold on it. Friends, listen, if you are not a believer in Jesus, yet you find all of this interesting and somewhat compelling, that is the Holy Spirit working in your heart to draw you to Jesus. That's what's happening there. It's, it's definitely not because I'm making it more interesting or tolerable to you. It's because the Holy Spirit is drawing you, that God is softening your heart to believe in the truth of the gospel, 
that Jesus died on a cross to cover your sin and rose from the dead to give you hope. That's the message. So the question is, what are you going to do about it? Because that decision is still unavoidable. We've already seen that you have to decide. So if your interest is undeniable, what are you going to do about it today? Not later, not this afternoon. What are you going to do about it now? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The choice is yours. As the old hymn declares, whosoever surely meaneth me. That's what it means. So we've seen an unavoidable decision. We see this undeniable interest. And then finally, and this is very sad, and I hope that you don't fall under, under this category today. We see an ultimate rejection. Verse 25. But as he, that's Paul, was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. That's where the sermon title comes from. When I find time, no better time than now. Both Felix and Drusilla listened to Paul's talk of righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, and the need for faith in Christ, but it was quickly over with when those things came up, if you see that. Like, the, the, the conversation ended. And about this interaction, Warren Wearsby, he wrote in one of his commentaries, Paul had a threefold argument telling them why they should accept Christ. And, and it's for you today, too, if you are not a believer. Number one, righteousness. They had to do something about past sin. Right? We all have to do that. Number two, self-control. They had to overcome today's temptations. And then number three, judgment to come. They had to be prepared for tomorrow's judgment. You have to have all three of these bases covered. And you know, most folks are cool with Jesus being a part of the conversation until sin and judgment become topics of discussion. Amen. Then they don't want to engage any longer. When that happens, the dialogue usually ends. And it's not because we are being terrible people by bringing that up. We're being truthful. We're trying to share that and truth and love and tell people why there is a need for a Savior. And that happens because we don't like to hear that we're sinners. We don't like to confront that. We like to think we're better than we are. We like to think we're better than that, that we do good, and somehow that good outweighs the bad. But that's not what the gospel tells us. You see, the gospel tells us that we are lost in our sins. Every one of us. Every one of us. Separated from a holy God with no hope of ever making things right on our own. No matter how much we try, you can never work your way into good graces with the Lord. But God is not a tyrant who leaves us in that helpless state. Aren't you glad for that today? Aren't you glad that he's a loving father who reaches down and pulls the orphan out of the gutter and dusts him off and says, look at this son, look at this daughter. They're a part of my family now. Amen. It's beautiful. In love, he wrapped himself in flesh. He lived perfectly among us, something we could never do, and died the death that we deserved on a cross. A terrible death. His perfection becomes ours when we believe in him. 
When God looks at us, he sees the perfection of his son overlaid on top of us. Jesus is the only way that we can ever be reconciled to God. The only way. And so we see the conscience of Felix at least was troubling enough for him to be afraid. He was fearful here. He, you know, the word that's used is what we would use for phobia. He, he definitely had a phobia to, to this, type of, this type of interaction. But he was not afraid enough to repent and believe. So friends, listen. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin, if you feel that today, it is dangerous to delay. It is dangerous to delay. There is no more convenient time to believe than now. Now, settle that question now. In verse 27, but after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. So for two years, this went on. And wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. So Paul just left there. So this went on for two years. Two years. He was there in Caesarea, and Felix... You know, Ken and I were talking about this, and it's almost like some of these guys that were in control at this time, it's almost like they were a cat playing with a ball of yarn. It's like, let's just bring this guy over here again. We'll slap him around a little bit more and talk to him a little bit more. Okay, we'll put him back away. We'll get him out and play with him again later. Like, it's kind of how they treated people. And here's something. Paul never resorted to bribery to be free. You see that? Paul didn't give in to, I'm sure Felix was like, man, if you just give me a little bit of money, you'd be happy. And Paul says, no, I'm going to keep my character. I'm going to keep my conscience clear before God and man. So scripture gives us no indication that Felix and Drusilla ever placed their faith in Christ. As a matter of fact, we don't even know if they heard the message again. This very well could have been the last time they were confronted with the claims of the gospel. And we have it here in print for us today. And it's sad because history tells us that Felix most likely died of tuberculosis not long after being removed from office. I mean, we just saw he was, he was removed from office, and, and he was succeeded by another guy, and not long after that, he died. And Drusilla and their son most likely died in Pompeii during the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD. Terrible way to die. So friends, listen, don't let this potentially be the last time you hear the good news of Jesus and walk away. Don't let it be that. Don't make the ultimate rejection. Don't fall into the trap that we see Felix and Drusilla fall in here in our text today. Instead, make the ultimate decision to give your life, everything that you are, all your brokenness, your hiccups, your hangups, all of it, give it to Jesus today. Amen. Let him put you back together and make you righteous, and make you a son, make you a daughter, make you a free person rather than a slave to sin. He can do that today. So unbelievers, don't put off coming to Christ. Don't put it off. That's been the entire theme of this message, and I told you that from the very beginning. It's not that you could drop dead by this time tomorrow, which it could happen. It could happen for me, too. It's not... It's not just that. It's that God might withdraw a further opportunity to respond. And God's God, and he can do that. He can withdraw all those opportunities. Uh, you might not have another opportunity to respond in this way in the future. You might not be confronted with it so head on again. None of us are guaranteed anything 
anything outside the hope that we have in Jesus. That's what we're guaranteed to. Amen. So there is no better time than now, capital N-O-W, to place your faith in Christ. And if you're a believer today, you're like, man, you know, this message is great for these people who aren't Christians. If you're a believer today, never get over the gospel. Never. I've said this countless times. It's not only what saves you, it is also what sustains you. Think about it every day. Remind yourself of it every day. I struggle to do this. I am preaching to myself right now. I hope you guys know that all this like steps and stomps on my toes before it ever comes to you guys. So this is something that, that Brandon is very much still a work in progress on. Reminding myself of the gospel every day. Even in the times that are hard. Remind yourself daily of the riches that you have in Jesus that you could not obtain on your own. And there is no better time than now to worship him and thank him for who he is, for what he has done in your life. So it's an unavoidable decision. Undeniable interest, if you have that today, don't turn away. Do not make an ultimate rejection. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for how you, you love us enough to tell us the truth. How you love us enough to confront us where we are and give us hope. You don't just show up and condemn us and tell us how terrible we are. You show up and tell us, I'm here for you and I love you anyway. And I want, <laughs> I want to transform you. So you don't leave us without hope. You give us hope. And I pray today for those that don't know you. If they have never given their heart and their life to you, may today be the day of salvation. There is no better time than now. I pray that you would bring conviction, that you would, that you would destroy lives of the enemy so that people would see that they can truly give their heart and life to you and be transformed. That they can rest solely rest solely upon you, rely solely upon you and what you have done, Jesus, to finish that work for us. For those of us that are believers, God, I pray today that we would never give over. I pray that we would relish what it is that you've done for us. May it make us humble. May it make us people of love and grace and mercy. May we take that to the world that desperately needs it. So God, we just pray that you would move as only you can in this time.